Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show. We're going to change the way that you think about love and desire, the juiciness of passion at work, play, and home today. My first guest is Saida Desilet. Saida is the visionary spokesperson for the sexual sovereignty movement. After two decades of working with women on their sexuality and sensuality, a PhD, Two books plus one more on the way and the development of a proven psychosexual method that is now being used in female medicine. I have the great pleasure of having her here with me today. Hi, Saida. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Lisa. I'm so excited to be back. This is amazing. <laughs> it is. It, it, and I'm, I'm holding desire in my hand. And why I say that is because this new book is a smaller pocket edition and it's beautiful. It has a beautiful, co luscious cover, actually. Very, very beautiful. So congratulations on the book. Let's Thank talk you. about the nature of desire. We all have it. I want to definitely address the nature of a desire because, you know, it's a subject when you say desire, people leap to certain assumptions about it, like sexuality or chocolate. <laughs> so... In this book, I'm proposing something that I feel hasn't really been said before, and it's looking at how philosophers and religion has had kind of a negative outlook on desire, actually, that desire at the end of the day is a reason for all our human suffering. And what I'm proposing is something completely different, that desire is an emergent evolutionary force of nature that doesn't only impact human beings, it's actually part of life, kind of like gravity is affecting everything here, it's affecting life. And that it is a, an instigator, it's a force that actually moves action forward, it helps evolution. So that's, uh, that's a little bit what I wanted to say about that initially, because I think we're going to go into some other aspects of desire shortly. And I just want to give you a moment to comment on that. Well, I, I think that desire is the, the kindling of all things. Right? Yes. Yes. It's the instigator. It's the spark. It's the thing that makes nothing become something. So it's, it's really powerful. And unfortunately, it's kind of an ambivalent force. It just is. It exists. It's like moving through all things. And so we can hijack it. And that hijacking process is usually done because of how we're socialized. And so that's part of the book that's really inviting the reader to explore within themselves is what I want really what I want. And that's a very important question. 
when we talk about the songs of desire and in, yes. in your book, you really do approach it from this very lyrical perspective. There are many. Yes, there are at least six. There's probably more I chose for the nature of simplicity and uh, keeping things in a place where we could <laughs> relate to it. There are six. There's uh, the most obvious is the desire song of Eros, which is around sexuality. So the, the natural turn on that we have as human beings. The desire for love is very strong in, in us. So uh, obviously there's a desire song for love. Procreation is also a really powerful desire to create a family. It's huge. Then there's the desire for thriving, which we rarely address, but it's really important because it helps it helps us in those really dark and difficult moments to somehow keep going. Yeah. So that's a very important one. And then there's the song of rapture, which is really, I think, could be controversial because rarely do we associate religion and spirituality with desire. But I actually think that the calling towards rapture to know your own version of the divine is a really powerful calling for people. And it's a very private and intimate calling. And then the last but not least in my book is the desire of contribution. Like, how, what am I here to, to leave as a legacy? What am I here to do? How am I contributing? And how vital and essential that is because when we're not contributing, it's almost like our life ends. And you can see it a little more with elderly people who somehow feel like their worth is no longer valid and they have nothing to contribute. And um, you can see them start to kind of fold inwardly. And then when you get them to contribute, they start to expand outwardly again. So it's, it's a really powerful force as well. Desire, desire, desire. It's where it all starts. But let's talk about fulfillment because yes. the desire is being the, 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 the spark or the kindling and then the process of fulfillment. I love this question. Thank you, Lisa. You're amazing. <laughs> so, the, so fulfillment, think about it. It's the eternal dangling carrot before us, right? We're going for these things. We, we are willing to go through pain because there's this thing we're going for. And maybe there are multiple things that we're going for. And so what I love to explore is, well, what is that underneath? Because there's a million things we could be going for. But is there a commonality? What's the felt state when we attain fulfillment, when we get that thing that we really want or we, we get an experience that we'd really love? And so what is that felt state? And to me, when I really broke it down, it's a feeling of intense aliveness. Right in the moment of fulfillment, whether I get the new car or I get a raise or I get, I don't know, a kiss from my lover, these things, like there's a sense of aliveness in my being for that moment. Yeah. Funnily enough, when we are going for hijacked desires, which is the majority of the things we go for, when we attain them, it's a really short-lived fulfillment, if at all. It's kind of like, what? This is it? Like, <laughs> I thought there was going to be, you know, fireworks or something when I got here, but there's nothing. It's kind of meh. So fulfillment, I started to realize, isn't a point on the map. It's not a end place in the journey. It's a state of being. Yeah. And what's beautiful about the shift of awareness 
from a thing to a state of being is we can cultivate fulfillment as we're going for things. Yeah. So that I feel is a really powerful change of perspective. I want to introduce the word euphoria into all of this, because we think of euphoria as that peak experience, that pinnacle experience. And what I'm hearing you say is perhaps it's in the process itself that this state of euphoria or rapture exists. Absolutely. It, at least it's the invitation. And I think when we're hyper-focused on an end result and we're not in the enjoyment of the unfoldment of the journey, we're robbing ourselves of moments or days or weeks or years of an experience that we could actually be having pretty consistently. And that's just purely conditioning. We don't really learn this at a young age. And so part of this book is to wake us up and invite us into the possibility. It's just a possibility, but it's there. And if we want to attempt it, it's um, actually not that difficult as an experience. And, you know, to take this into the, the, the sexual realm and give it a different kind of metaphor, in a sexual encounter when we're, we're making love with our partner and the focus is solely on the orgasm or the release or the end result, it actually slows down the process. Yeah, well, sometimes it speeds it up <laughs> very quickly. But, but yes, in terms of feeling fulfilled sexually... It's definitely not just the orgasm or like this place we're going to. It's the entire experience, the foreplay, the sensuality, the connection, the the surprise. Eros is surprising. So sometimes if we're just open and really present with one another, uh, there's probably things that will emerge that neither person planned. And that's really beautiful. And then you take that experience into the other dimensions or dominions of our our lives. Yes. I see this as powerful. Very powerful. Also because I feel like we're in a time where we're suffering from a lot of apathy. It's intense out there. There's a lot going on. And so it feels pretty natural to shut down to protect ourselves. But apathy is for a few moments okay. You know, we need to disengage sometimes. But as a perpetual condition, it's really harmful because our human spirit is meant to have enthusiasm. It's meant to wake up with curiosity and uh, even a little daring. That's how our ancestors did it. That's how we made it here. (laughs) We had to be daring. And so part of the book is also inviting you saying, hey, this is who you are. You, You know, fulfillment can be had now. You have true desires. We could explore those. But in order to do that, in order to break free of hijacked desires, in order to really do that, it takes daring. Because what, the, what you're going to have to do is feel your own heart. Notice what deeply matters in your heart and be vulnerable enough to at least admit it to yourself, if no one else. And that can take daring. Yeah. And well, without any risk, there is absolutely no reward. I mean, it's built into the reward process that there has to be risk. And many of us, like you say, we're shut down. We're on autopilot. Life and the world have gotten so busy that we have cut off that energy, that flow of desire because we don't think we have the time for it. Absolutely. And we're we vilified it, right? We're blaming 
this force for all our misbehaviors. So it's something important to have a look at because if we vilify part of our nature, then we um, don't have access to that power. And that is a, an immense power that can allow us to actually create a life that we're really enjoying living and a life that when we come to the end of our days, we feel happy about. We're like, yeah, I'm ready to go. I did it. I lived this life. <laughs> yeah. We want to be wrung out. I mean, that's my exactly. goal at the end. I want to be like, exactly. like a sponge, completely wrung out. Yeah. And then I can go. <laughs> exactly. So we want to get our songs completely sung. We don't want to leave a song unsung. That is something that I feel is, is very sad. Oh, how beautifully said. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversations with Dr. Saida Desilet. To learn more, please visit www.desirethebook.com. You can also find out more about Saida's work at saidadesilet.com. On Twitter, that handle is Saida Desilet. And of course, on Facebook, it's Dr. Saida Desilet. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to change the way that you think about love and desire. We're talking about the juiciness of passion and intimacy at work, play, and at home with my guest, Saida Desilet. Saida, prior to the break, we were talking about all aspects of desire. And I know what comes to many people's mind is desire in the bedroom, but we're actually speaking about desire in every other aspect of our life that may flow into the bedroom. Absolutely. And it, it's actually really important because we don't spend the majority of our time in the bedroom. <laughs> so we want to be alive and deeply switched on in all our moments of life. And, and that's why I wanted to broaden our awareness of how desire is functioning within our daily moments and our ordinary moments. And I would say that desire is what fuels everything. We have a desire for pleasure and we have a desire to not experience pain. Absolutely. So the, and that is a, a beautiful biological tendency. So even the smallest amoeba will like move away from pain and expand towards what feels good. And so that's a very powerful response. I'm glad you brought it up because when we can see that sometimes we're really simple biological creatures, <laughs> <laughs> then we want to start being an in inquiry. Well, what does allow me to feel expanded and open? Because that is the state where we thrive. That's the state where all systems uh, work a lot better. The immune system works better. The nervous system, digestive, all our systems are designed to be optimally functioning when we're more in the state of pleasure, at least feeling good. So I'm not referring necessarily to sexual pleasure, but just that feel good feeling. And that feeling good, I'm going to go a step further, comes from feeling at home in one's body and in one's mind. Yes. And what I feel really important, one of the invitations of this little book is I question our ability to really know ourselves. And I invite the reader 
to spend time, I like this phrase, marinating in their own essence. Mm. Because we cannot be the designers and creators and the leaders of our own life journey if we don't know our own essence. We will unfortunately be subject to the desires and impulses and ideals of others if we don't know who we are. And so this inquiry is actually very important. And you know what's interesting, Lisa, is a lot of people know what they don't want. They know what they don't like. They know what they hate. But when I say yes, but tell me what you'd love. It's like crickets. And it's not necessarily that people don't know what they'd love. It's that it's profoundly vulnerable to articulate it. Mm. Yes. And that vulnerability, I think, is something that we need to lean into, at least in our own private space with ourselves. That's why this I created actually to go along with the book. There's a whole series of free videos and some free audio meditations. And one of them, the meditations, is to allow people to really sit in their own hearts and feel what's alive there and to at least admit it to themselves. That's where the first step of vulnerability is, right? It's with ourselves like, oh, wow, could I really allow myself to want that and to feel a little bit of the agony of the possibility that I may never get it, but I'm still allowed to desire it. And then that makes it viable. If it exists in my heart, it's viable, even if I don't know the how at this point. Mm, the pregnant with possibility, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Hey, well, you know, we call it the V word around here. <laughs> like, oh, tell, tell me more. I like well, it. <laughs> I go, you know, we're we're going to talk about that V word. And they're like, what? The V word? I'm like, yeah, vulnerability. And then the eyes uh, roll, you know, because then the next thing that comes along with that V word is the exploration of the S word, you know, which is shame. <laughs> yes. And you know, it's interesting because shame is, is a learned experience. And I do speak about shame, especially in the chapter around Eros, because that's where it shows up a lot in our culture um, and the uselessness of it. So, but it's a learned experience. So as we learn shame, then we almost self-shame perpetually. It's like we first learn it externally and then we, we, we perpetuate it. And the only way around that is to face it and face the vulnerability and the discomfort and to allow ourselves to take responsibility that we exist and that we matter and that what's important to our hearts, it's actually essential. And even if, if it doesn't matter to anyone else, it's okay. It matters to you. And taking a stand for that, Lisa, is, is something that's really part of my message. Like We're sovereign beings. We must occupy our space. And when we do that, when we fill out this space that's called us, <laughs> we can show up in much bigger ways and we can have impact in ways that we maybe never dreamed of. But whether or not we like it, we are having impact. It's yeah. the kind of impact that we have that we can look at. If we don't embody our space, often our impact isn't that pleasant. So when we occupy space, we can start to direct our impact in really creative ways that are actually in harmony with our families and community and life itself. I want to just go back to something that you said about occupying space, because in working with clients, I work in addiction and trauma recovery for part of my life. And I often encounter, typically they're women, but sometimes they're men as well who have an eating disorder. And we talk about this occupying 
of space or occupation mm. of space. Mm. And I think you're hitting on something really important. We must occupy. We must have a footprint. Yes, absolutely. And, and what's interesting, Lisa, is this is very old. The need to belong is so ingrained in our systems, all our systems, that if we, if we feel that's under threat, it's, it's like life-threatening. Although that's not true anymore, that many individuals can survive without their tribe, for example, we're still interdependent. And so there's this need to belong that then overrides this other stuff. So what happens is in order to belong, we bargain away things that might be important to us, but now we're belonging so we feel safe. And that's really important to look at because overriding things that are really essential to our own nature is dangerous. It's when we disown ourselves. And that's when we, the psyche is wondering what's happening. The psyche needs the body to be in relationship with it. So if we're leaving our bodies and we're not in relationship with it, it's very confusing. And that's when a lot of the traumas do happen and addictions do happen. It's like a call back to the body but in a way that we're a little bit disassociated still in the callback. Mm-hmm. So reassociation, understanding that you belong primarily, first of all, to life. The fact that you're here, you belong, period. There's no even negotiation <laughs> about that. And when you belong to life instead of a person or a, a group, it's much bigger. And no one can take that from you. It's here. Yes. And I would also add that there's worthiness embedded in that. Just because you are means that you are worth. There's, again, that's non-negotiable, right? But we don't see that. Many of us, we, we don't see that. We disconnect from our worthiness and find ourselves in emotional and spiritual crisis. Yes. And you know what's interesting? We're a culture that actually thrives on unworthiness. Because if you were to interact with a person who's really confident, fully embodied, totally knows their worth, most of the time they get labeled as arrogant or full of themselves or et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a culture of your misery and my misery, like they, they, they like company, they like each other. So there, you know, we have to break free of that. So the book looks at how much we're domesticated, how much we live by social mandates. Yeah. And how to free ourselves of that without needing to create tremendous amount of chaos. There is a a graciousness and a beauty when we can simply come home to ourselves through the act of saying, you know what? I don't feel it right now, but I'm going to choose that it's true that I matter, that my voice matters, the space that I am matters And the thing that lives in my heart that's scaring the living crap out of me, that also matters. And what is that? Let's put a little light on this. Like we're not going to melt. We're not going to die if we let a little light in to see what that thing is. Absolutely. And that goes back to the desire and the the fear of our own desire or the, the, the immensity of our want. Yes. And so I think what happens is because we've been so in denial of this powerful force and basically told that it's something scary and big, which it can be. It really can. It can overtake you sometimes. But when you start having a healthier relationship with this part of yourself, it's like a maturity process happens. 
And now you realize, I just have to worry about the next obvious step. And I don't have to like force my way through life. I can actually have a, a listening aspect where I'm listening. Like, here's what I'm going for. What's obvious? Oh, what's obvious is I need to actually meet somebody or I need to sleep or I need to whatever. And you do the obvious thing. What we tend to do is we go for something and we think it should be here now. And then we're looking so far ahead that it just feels impossible. And we're not doing what's obvious. So our life, I feel, Lisa, that we're guided by a prime directive in our essence. So when we come back, we start to listen. It's not going to be all revealed at once. Desire is the way. It's like the visceral voice of your own soul's calling. And what will become obvious is the simple thing. And you do that. And then the next simple thing. And that's how life unfolds. It's a beautiful unfolding mystery that we get to play with. Yeah, I, I agree. Dr. Saida Desolet, thank you for coming to hang out with me and share your new book, Desire, exploring the daring topic of turning our attention towards our true desires can open up the doors to live life on our own terms. So that ripe, juicy subject of desire is so much more than what goes on between our legs. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you, Lisa. You're such an incredible woman and I just love your curiosity and passion. Oh, thank you. To learn more, please visit www.desirethebook.com. You can also find Saida at www.saidadesilay.com, on Twitter at Saida Desilay, and on Facebook, Dr. Saida Here comes the break. We'll be right back with our next guest. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because we're going to change the way, or we are changing the way that you think about love and desire. We're talking about the juiciness of passion and intimacy at work, play, and home. And my next guest is Dr. Lissa Rankin. Dr. Lissa Rankin is one of the first guests I ever had on the show almost nine years ago. She'll tell you about how her life and her profession has evolved, but I'm honored to have her back because I was a newbie nine years ago and she had written her first book and we helped each other. So here it is all these years later. Welcome, Dr. Lissa Rankin, back to the show. <laughs> I'm so happy to be back. Thank you. It's, it's funny. You were trained as a physician. You had a conventional practice until 2007. Then you began seeing patients in your own mind-body practice in Northern California. And then you closed the practice to pursue the life of a writer and educator. That's right. It was not an easy decision after, you know, 12 years of medical education. Yeah. And how many books? I've written seven books now. 
So, and I, I was always a writer. I was, uh, as a child, I was a writer. I was a creative writing major in college. So I kind of, it's sort of funny because people think of me as like the doctor turned writer, but it's more like the writer turned doctor turned back home. Yeah. So you've come home to yourself through this process. Yeah. 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 And I'm still, I still, you know, I certainly am still involved in healthcare. I, I'm training doctors now in a program called the Whole Health Medicine Institute, but it's far more aligned with my own inner pilot light than what I was doing when I was in a conventional practice. Ah, the book that we first came together about is um, Mind Over Medicine, and it was a New yeah. York Times bestseller. So that was way back in the day. And, <laughs> and the new book we're talking about today is entitled The Daily Flame, 365 Love Letters from Your Inner Pilot Light. Talk a little bit about what you mean by the inner pilot light. I think I know. I think I shared a little bit. Well, you know, I I first came into contact with this part of myself uh, when I was really unhappy in my job as a medical doctor, and I, I was pregnant with my daughter and suicidally depressed, like really having a rough time at work. My father had just been diagnosed with a brain tumor, and I was really feeling that integrity breach of kind of selling out at work. When I started my job, I was expected to see 25 patients a day. And by the time I quit, I was expected to see 40 patients a day. Oh. And I had that heart of a healer, but you can't be a healer in seven and a half minutes. So it was really tearing me apart. And I was, as so many people seem to be, I was on the floor of my bathroom, bawling my eyes out <laughs> with my pregnant belly in front of me. And I heard this voice that said, sweetheart, you're going to have to quit your job. Wow. And this was terrifying because, again, I'd never, like, medicine was my life. And I was, you know, I was the primary breadwinner. My then husband wasn't working. We had a baby on the way. So that sounded like an impossible instruction, but it had that plunk of truth that we tend to feel when that part of us starts to give us instructions. So I, I began a journey um, now over 10 years of what would it be like if, if, if there's some part in me that knows that, what, is it, what would it be like to become more intimate with that part and to begin receiving and trusting the guidance that might come through that part? And so what is it? Well, you know, every religious tradition has their own name for it. Call it, you know, Christ consciousness or Buddha nature or the seat of the soul or the center or, uh, you know, or your intuition whatever you want to call it, I think of it as that kind of spark of divinity, that the life force, the, the love force that animates us as unique creations of the creator, but also connects us to sort of the eternal flame. Like we are, it's the portal, like the transducer to the life force of everything. Of I'm very much an animist when it comes to my sort of spiritual worldview. Like I really believe everything is alive and has consciousness, even things we might call inanimate, like a mountain. And it's that, yeah, that divine flame in me that connects me to the mountain and the ocean and the earth and the animals and every other human on the planet and the cosmos. And through that connectedness, Somehow, in mysterious ways that I certainly can't explain with my scientific mind, we can know things that we wouldn't necessarily know from our rational, logical, analytical, cognitive minds. And what I find very mysterious and very exciting is that the more I became intimate with that aspect of myself, the more that 
itself kind of took the wheel and started kind of driving my life on a path that I never would have signed up for had I known where we were going. (laughs) But it was like I was just given one breadcrumb at a time. It was kind of like if you trust, if you trust that love and follow the breadcrumbs, somehow 10 years later, you wind up going, oh my God, really? This is where we're going? Yeah. So, yeah. And everybody has this part. I call it the inner pilot light because some people feel like it can grow very dim, right? Like it's just a flicker, but it never goes out. Unlike actual pilot lights, which can sometimes go out, this never ignites. It's like the spark is turned on the minute you're born. And that aspect, that elemental consciousness, I believe, sort of follows you when you die, where you kind of reconnect with the eternal flame. And so uh, I think people, when they get anxious or depressed or kind of lose trust, then they can feel sort of lost and maybe think that that element of themselves, that sort of essence has, uh, has flamed out. But I think it's really hopeful to realize that it's within us all and that there are tools and practices that we can do. And that's a lot of why I wrote The Daily Flame. I started writing it in 2009 because it started as a practice where every morning I would tune into my inner pilot light and I would just ask, what what do you need me to know today? And I would write it down. So it was like a love letter, like my inner pilot light would write all my other parts, my anxious parts, my wounded parts, my scared parts. I would write the other parts a letter of what I needed to know that day. And I started posting some of them on social media and people were like, oh my God, how did she know that's exactly what I needed to hear today? So I realized that what my inner pilot light was telling me was maybe not just for me. And so I started publishing a daily email called The Daily Flame at innerpilotlight.com. And then other people started writing back to the Daily Flame, dear dear inner pilot light, you know, love Leslie. (laughs) Uh, And they started asking questions to the Daily Flame. And so uh, those love letters started becoming personalized to other people who had made specific requests of what they needed to hear from their inner pilot light. So it became, you know, it's almost 10 years now of that daily practice that during the past year, my mother died of, of cancer. And so I was doing the sort of hospice caregiver thing. And so this book kind of came out with 365 new daily flames while I was kind of sitting at my mother's bedside and saying goodbye. So there was very tenderhearted time. Wow. That's quite a story right there, that end point. But I want to go back mm. to intimacy because you've mentioned that yeah. word several times. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is this idea that we can build this deeply intimate relationship with ourselves that interests me is what you've written here yeah me too i love the way richard schwartz who created he's a family therapist who created a system called ifs internal family systems where he was working with teenagers with eating disorders and working with their families and he discovered that the same way Uh, Our family systems can have kind of multiple parts that are all in conflict and polarized against each other, that we can have these parts inside of us that are also polarized against each other. So, for example, we might have the part in us that does the bad thing that we want to quit. You know, the the sugaraholic or (laughs) or the workaholic or the sort of, you know, 
wineaholic or whatever. Like we have our, we all have our kind of addictions. And by wineaholic, do you you don't mean the drink? You mean the the kvetch. Well, however, <laughs> however you want to define it, <laughs> right? Like we all have our compulsions. Like for me, my biggest compulsion, I actually went and did some twelve steps around it, is codependence. Ah. So it's like, God, I've got to stop overgiving and then getting resentful and trying to control people with my codependence. So you can 12-step codependence for those codependents listening in. So, you know, we have those compulsions, and we know we want to quit, and, but then we have the inner critic that's like hammering the part that's doing the bad thing that we want to quit. And then we go into shame because we do it again, and then we have to do the compulsion again to feel better, and we create this vicious cycle. But we can become intimate with all of those parts. And then as we develop more of a relationship with the part I call your inner pilot light, which Dick calls self with a capital S, because he likes to sort of stay away from the spiritual, it's in us all. And that self, if, if we become intimate with that, if it becomes kind of our beloved, like the beloved mother that you didn't have or the beloved father that you didn't have, then that can become kind of the inner parent or the inner lover who can give the unconditional love and acceptance to all of the other parts. And that catalyzes a shift. You know, people talk about self-love and self-compassion and all of that, but like how? Yeah. How do we do that? (laughs) Right. This is what I love about, about the concept of the inner pilot light or the self is this is the how, because we can't our wounds can't love our wounded parts. It's too, yeah, we, we judge them too much. But the divinity inside of us can love all of our parts the way God, Goddess, loves us. There's no judgment there. There's no way to get it right. There's no way to mess it up. There's no there there. There's no place to get. Like that which you seek is already here. And if we allow ourselves to become intimate with those parts, to really open our hearts, and get curious, and explore, uh, and ask questions. So part of my practice with my inner pilot light is I've discovered that if I can get the question right, this is, I'm teaching a, a program, I'm developing it to go with the book launch called Connect With Your Inner Pilot Light. And the practice of asking the right question is part of it. And so if I can get the questions right, if I can be curious in the right way, what I find is I always get the answer. Yeah. Like this, and, and think about the ramifications of that. There's a passage I'd love to read from Dr. Lissa Rankin's new book, The Daily Flame, 365 Love Letters from Your Inner Pilot Light, 259, My Precious. Yes, I see your to-do list. Wow. It's long. Don't worry. All will be checked off in due time, but before it all starts to overwhelm you, tune in, pause, breathe, remember divine timing. First, slow down, give the list to me, ask for my help, knowing what needs doing and when, listen deeply to what I have to say, trust that I won't leave you in the lurch, and I won't dismiss the parts of you that feel anxious about everything on that list. Give me a chance to show you that if there's something that needs your urgent attention, I'll let you know. Invite me to remove anything from your list that isn't really important. Then listen up. Take action only if I guide you. Your most trustworthy, efficient, and faithful daybook. 
your inner pilot light. Here comes Aww. the break. To learn more about the work of Dr. Lisa Rankin, please visit LissaRankin.com on Twitter at Lisa Rankin and on Facebook. That page is Lisa Rankin. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Trust that that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We're continuing our conversation about love and desire with my guest, Dr. Lissa Rankin. We're really talking about the juiciness of intimacy and passion with ourselves and how that plays out at work, play, and at home. So, Lissa, I read the page that I just happened to open to, which fed me exactly the soul food that I needed for the day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the slow down, the to-do list. And you said that you opened up to one that needed to be read. You want me to read it now? I would love it. Okay, great. Yeah, so a lot of people are using using this as kind of an oracle, like, what do I need to hear today? It's just sort of opening through intuition. So I opened to Love Letter 197. Dear one, there are three ways you can live your life. Through door number one, you can always play the victim, whining your way through life. See, there we go, the whineaholic. <laughs> whining your way through life as one misfortune after another plagues you never claiming your part in anything that happens always blaming and shaming others behind door number two you can take too much responsibility for your part in everything that happens cutting others far too much slack failing to set boundaries and neurotically tolerating things that really are not okay with you in the name of I'm so spiritual and compassionate or you can choose door number three Behind door number three, you don't stay stuck in your victim story, milking it for decades, revisiting it constantly, and failing to take responsibility for how you participated in the creation of the painful experience. You let yourself grieve, get angry, set boundaries, and establish consequences without spiritual bypassing. You don't spend your life whining about how bad things happen to good people, feeling helplessly attacked by a hostile universe that's spinning out of your control. Instead, you're open and curious about what you're learning, how you participated in an outcome that may not feel good, and how you might grow, awaken, forgive, transform, and get your heart burst open from the experience. It's even possible to feel grateful for that thing that hurts once you move through the painful emotions and start to see the gifts. 
When you choose door number one, you may feel as if I don't even exist, even though I'm still sputtering away in there somewhere. When you choose door number two, you miss out on the heat of my fiery, fierce flame. When you choose door number three, you are held and loved when you feel like a victim. You are open to the fire in your belly that shows you where your hell no lives, and you open the rabbit hole to the great mystery of curiosity, humility, personal responsibility, surrender, and attunement to divine will. Of course, you are loved and you are worthy no matter which door you live behind, but let me tell you, sweetheart, door number three is full of magic, mystery, synchronicity, and unbearably ecstatic up-bubblings of bliss. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, your inner pilot light. Dang, woman. (laughs) 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 That's hot. And I mean, you know, like I felt the heat rise here because, yeah, yeah, that's what we were talking about. Inner pilot light, like they're always loving, but sometimes it's a little like, you know, scalpel. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's laser pointed, um, you know, snap out of it, Loretta. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. And some of them are just full on, like, gushing, ecstatic, like the grandmother who loves you like crazy, just because you need to hear 10 terms of endearment in one letter. (laughs) But this is the idea that we can, we can give ourselves these things that we need. That's right. And that is the one part of you that will never abandon you, will never leave you. I mean, I'm, I'm in an incredible marriage. I adore my husband. But both of us, and both of us practice this practice of cultivating intimacy with our own inner pilot light because when one of us spins out and we go into a trauma loop, then we, we drop our partner. We don't mean to. We love each other. But in that moment... When we're fully in our story and we're kind of spinning our trauma, then the other person often feels abandoned. But what I've discovered is that if I feel abandoned by my partner or if he feels abandoned by me, then all we have to do is go into our inner world. And like everything that I wish my partner would give me in that moment when he's spinning out is right there inside of me. And I can comfort all of my parts and remind them, don't worry, we've got this. Yeah. And he'll come back. He always comes back. And yeah. then they calm down. And then I'm not dependent on that love from somebody outside of me because it's right here. It's so close. And then I'm able to bring more of that intimacy back to the relationship with whoever I'm, all my loved ones, because I'm bringing that clarity. Like Dick Schwartz, when he talks about self, he talks about the eight C's. I'm not going to remember them all off the top of my head. They're in my book, but they're like compassion, clarity, courage, calm. Things like that. You know, it's when you're speaking, I'm thinking about how helpful this is for people who are rumbling with trauma. Yes. You know, and we all, we all rumble with we trauma, all are. <laughs> by the traumas way. <laughs> of, well, the traumas of everyday life. I'm, I'm, I've, uh, I'm actively working with a trauma therapist because my mom died. And so like a lot of stuff comes up. I had a lot of traumas in the past five years. And so, you know, it's amazing the things that we think of as so small, like one of the core traumas of my life was being four years old and having my two-year-old brother, you know, attack me, like just sort of clobber me. And I would start to cry for my mother to come and save me. And when my mother got there, my brother would 
uh, would say, she did it. She hit me. And I would get in trouble because I was the older one. And this whole theme of like being innocent but getting punished and having nobody believe me uh-huh. has been like a core trauma of my life. Now, some people would say, well, that's not really trauma. I mean, I wasn't sexually abused. I didn't live in a war zone. I'm not a refugee. Like I had a kind of idyllic, you know, middle American lifestyle as a child. And yet that, that core trauma, which everybody has like a sibling trauma or things like that. But it can fundamentally shift how we operate and the beliefs about the world and the the circumstances that we attract. And for me, that story of I'm innocent but I'm getting punished got ramped up to the point where I was in court defending myself against something that I didn't do. And I'm going, oh, my God, I've got to get help. There's the theme. And, and you, the interesting thing about trauma is the brain does not know the difference, right? The brain it just sees that, that there's a threat to safety and well-being. Absolutely. And when we're children, we're not resourced to handle those threats of losing love, losing approval, uh, losing shelter. And so we'll orient our whole system. That's where all of our parts come in. We'll orient our whole system to protect the child. And those parts are still active. We're sort of blended with them usually as adults. But we don't need to be. We don't need that protection anymore because now we're adults. And so when we become intimate with the inner pilot light, and we can let that drive the bus. I like to think of it like a school bus, and you've got like 20 inner children in the back, and they're all sort yeah. of like, you know, making a lot of noise. But you've got this mature, loving bus driver who's like, yes, I hear you. I'm taking it under advisement. Yes, I hear your request, but I'm the one that's actually going to make the decisions. And life really fundamentally shifts when you have that sort of soul-led or inner pilot-led life, rather than blending with all those parts and being reactive to life and just letting your wounds and your traumas make your decisions unconsciously. You don't need, we don't even know it. And so that's why, for me, it's become a, a series of practices. It's very practical. This is, it's not, uh, it can be quite esoteric, but it doesn't have to be. It's actually quite teachable and quite learnable to discover what is aligned for me, not just what do I want. And this is where Saida and I really gel. I wrote the foreword to Saida's book. And so we really gel in that way of like, yes, my desires are part of my compass. My inner pilot light might use desire as part of my guidance, but I might also be hijacked by some of my parts that have desires that actually aren't aligned for me or might even be damaging to me. So how can I find and discover and trust the guidance that will guide me to my true calling so that I can sort of find and fulfill my life purpose to my, the people that I'm meant to have in my inner circle to my sort of soul tribe, like writing my books, all of these things are, I'm really dependent on this guidance system for everything from parenting to my health decisions to health decisions for my loved ones. I was just helping a dear friend make a decision about surgery by using these practices to tune into his inner pilot light so he could assess not what does the logical mind think about whether or not he should get this major risky surgery, but what's aligned? Because when we align with that transducer that is in connection to sort of everything that's knowable in the cosmos, then we can get instructions that are wiser than just the cognitive mind. It doesn't mean the cognitive mind isn't helpful, but that's one tool of about 20 that I use. 
And when we think about the other brains that exist within our human bodies, right? There's, there's the brain that sure. lives in the head. Then there's the brain that lives in the heart, the brain that lives in the belly, you know, sort of in the heart uh, uh, c- connection and allowing that brain to speak, I believe is what you're really talking about here. Absolutely. But I, and I also take it a level beyond that because I believe that those consciousness those those access points of consciousness also connect us to things that are outside of our physical body. And that through that portal, that's what I mean. Like the esoteric people in more esoteric realms will talk about things like the gnosis field. And you might call this intuition. You know, there's times where you just, especially if it's a crisis, especially if something risky is happening, like for me being on the floor of the bathroom, where I'm at risk and it's often in those times of crisis where we hear this guidance the most obviously and all of a sudden you just know something that you don't know how you know it and sometimes for me it's been very specific like turn left now and it turns you turns out you just narrowly avoided a car crash yeah. uh, things like that so where is that coming from oh, well I don't know but it's connected to all those gut brains and heart brains and, uh, you know, brain brains. <laughs> but I think it also is connected to some sort of conductor, whatever you want to call it, that can see the whole picture better than I can see the whole picture. So something that I might think I want might actually make me completely miserable. I can certainly think of many times where I've put the force of my will behind making something happen that I was like, wow, be careful what you wish for. That was not really so yeah. great. Yeah, be careful and, what you wish for. <laughs> you might just get right? <laughs> And vice versa. I've yeah. had times where something happens and it feels like the biggest crisis of my life. And in retrospect, I look back and see it as the biggest blessing of my life. So if we can c- sort of relax our strong preferences and our strong aversions into a kind of surrender to a greater wisdom that the inner pilot light can be a portal to and trust that, follow that, let that guide you, even if it feels like it's guiding you towards something you think you don't want. Yeah. That is when life gets really interesting. (laughs) For the uh, spiritually skeptical and seeking, Mm -hmm. I highly recommend the Daily Flame 365 (laughs) Love Letters from Your Inner Pilot Light, which is a collection of unbridled love letters from your inner source filled with acceptance, comfort, and encouragement by Dr. Lissa Rankin, my guest today. Thank you, Lissa. I want to give our guests some contact information to learn more about Lissa's books and courses that you're developing, please go to LissaRankin.com on Twitter, at LissaRankin, and on Facebook, Lissa Rankin. And can I add one more? You can. Yeah, the DailyFlameBook.com will have some stuff that's particularly relevant just to this particular content, because LissaRankin.com has all the stuff for Mind Over Medicine, and the Fear Cure, and the Anatomy of a Calling, and all of that. But if people are particularly interested in just that content, the DailyFlameBook.com. Perfect. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest today, Saida Desilet and Dr. Lisa Rankin, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. 
Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.